hints of esoteric theosophy. Number one, is theosophy a delusion? Do the brothers exist? By Philosophical Society. Read by Graham Dunlop. Edited by Darren Grimes. These letters are published with the permission of the writers, not because any of them are altogether free from errors and misconceptions, but because it is hoped that they may help to explain to all interested in the question the present position of theosophy, and by increasing the earnestness of all concerned in the movement, pave the way for more authoritative and less imperfect views on the whole question. No tree can grow without soil, and theosophy can only flourish and develop its fair flowers and refreshing fruits, where many pure hearts seeking the truth are gathered together. April 1882. Postscript. The whole of the original issue of this pamphlet having been disposed of, a second edition slightly enlarged is now published. July 1882. Number 1. Is theosophy a delusion? Do the brothers exist? Number one, letter from G.Y. Late, FTS to H.X.F.T.S. My dear sir, I have duly received your long and interesting letter of the blank, and have read it, as well as its enclosures, fragments of occult truth, the rules of the ladies' theosophical society, and the address therein contained, and Colonel Alcott's letter of the 30th of September, 1881. With the greatest possible care, I have also reread Mr. Sinnott's Occult World, and have given due consideration to all the many little circumstances related by you. Yet I am compelled to say that, knowing now, apparently, all that any of you know, I am far from convinced that the Theosophical Society has any real or reliable foundation. Now, please understand me at once. I am not one of the vulgar scoffers. I do not doubt that Madame Blavatsky is a lady by birth. I have seen the original letters from men like Prince Dondukov Korsakov, as high an official in the Russian administration as Lord Ripon is in the British. And I know that she is well-born and highly connected. I know, too, all about Colonel Alcott. I have read all the letters about him, including the late President of the United States' autograph recommendation of him to all United States ministers and consuls. So far as their antecedents are concerned, I am perfectly satisfied. I know also that they never have made and are never likely to make any money out of this business, and that, on the contrary, they have both spent a good deal of money out of their own private means to enable the work of the society to proceed. I see no reason to question the genuineness of the phenomena recorded in Mr. Sinnott's work. They are similar in class to many of which I have had personal cognizance. As you know, without ever becoming a convert to their theories, I have, for the last 20 years, whenever I have had the opportunity, worked both in Europe and America in concert with spiritualists and some of their best mediums. I know all about mesmerism so far as it is known to the West, about Reichenbach's researches, some of which I have verified, and I have read many books treating of or rather hinting at different phases of occultism. There was nothing therefore a priori revolting to my common sense, 
as they are revolting to that of many men who have never read upon or personally investigated these questions. And the pretensions always set up by the founders of the Theosophical Society in every inner circle of this, of being the instruments of an august brotherhood of adepts, I by no means believed that any such brotherhood existed. I was familiar with the popular traditionary history of the Rosicrucians, the Illuminati, etc. I had often pored and pondered over Zanoni, and I was therefore at no loss to conceive sources from which fictitious ideas of such a brotherhood might arise. But, on the other hand, I was too well aware of the very limited character of our knowledge of matters, psychical, to think of pretending to gauge the possibilities of the universe. I did not believe in this brotherhood, but I felt that it might nevertheless be a fact, of which I was quite ready to be convinced. I have nothing to say against the morality preached by the founders generally, or set forth in the few words attached to the rules of the Ladies' Theosophical Society. Nothing can be better or purer. If I had a remark to make here, it would only be that, if this be theosophy, it is also the universal theoretical code, Christianity without Christ, as many would call it. Nor have I anything to say against the avowed objects of the Theosophical Society. The first, or universal brotherhood, is a utopian idea that has gilded the dreams of philanthropic philosophers in all ages. It is as old as mankind, and for all that I can discover that the Theosophical Society has ever done, or is ever likely to do, still quite as unattainable in practice as it has ever been. This universal brotherhood was equally a cardinal doctrine of the founder of Christianity, with what results in practice the history of that religion throughout the world only too sadly shows us. It was surely not necessary to start a new society to put forward that doctrine. As for the second object, the study of ancient languages, literature, and religion, a good deal of that has been going on throughout the world during the last 25 years without the help of the Theosophical Society, which has not only done nothing worthy the name, as yet, towards fostering or furthering such studies, but manifestly does not contain in it even the germs of any organization which could even render such furtherance possible. As for the papers that have appeared on such subjects and the Theosophist, they are almost, without a single exception, reshofts of what has been better said elsewhere, long ago, or else, where in any degree original, crude, unenlightened, and almost beneath the criticism of any real scholar. It is only in its third object that the society strikes out any at all novel line, and this object alone could justify its existence. Certainly the world required no new society to preach the old doctrine of loving one's neighbors as oneself, or to encourage a study of ancient literature or religion. So far as these objects are concerned, there is nothing in the society to justify its foundation. It has no raison d'etre. But its third object, the investigation of the hidden mysteries of nature and the psychical powers latent in man, is although not absolutely a new idea, one that has been greatly neglected and overlooked, meriting, if there really be anything in it, a special society to re-enunciate it and urge its prosecution. Naturally then, despite disclaimers on the founders' parts, this has always been held by all thinking men to be the real object of the society since if this were not so, the society would be meaningless. 
It was looking to this object that I joined the society. I had no objection to the other objects. I was in sympathy with them, but I should have chosen more effectual channels for furthering these objects had they stood alone and, but for the third object, never should have joined the society. Now I was for more than two years a theosophist. I diligently read the magazine of the society. I have conversed with and questioned something like 100 theosophists of all races, creeds, and nationalities. I have inquired and sought diligently, and I cannot discover that either I or any other theosophist has learnt one iota concerning the hidden mysteries of nature or the psychical powers latent in man, in consequence or as a result, direct or indirect, of our connection with the society. Therefore, I look upon the society as a delusion. If I were left alone out in the cold, I might attribute it to my own shortcomings, but it is not so. Dozens of men, cleverer than Madame Blavatsky, as beneficent, pure, and self-devoted as Colonel Alcott, are in the same predicament. The whole society is left out in the cold. There's plenty of talk, but nothing is done. It is vox e proteria nihil. But you specially draw my attention to the fragments of occult truth, and say that if we can get a series of papers like this, expounding gradually the whole philosophy, we shall surely have learned much. Now, in the first place, there is nothing very new in this particular fragment, which has alone as yet been vouchsafed. It is a kind of sublimated Buddhism or Vedantism, readjusted so as not to traverse directly anything that modern science has proved or modern spiritualism has established. And in the second place, whether it is worth learning, much or little of it, depends upon whether it is true. So far as I can learn, there is no guarantee for its being anything but a pure speculation, similar to hundreds of others that I have met with in books, ancient and modern, a speculation, less reasonable than some, less probable than others, and less acceptable to my mind and heart than others, again, of these dreams which crowd the intellectual records of the world. You say that two of the adept brothers personally revised this fragment. But, my dear non-adept friend, how do you know this? How do you know that the brothers exist at all? Have you ever seen or spoken to one of these? Has any cultivated European that you know, except Colonel Alcott and Madame Blavatsky, any independent person on whose judgment and good faith you can implicitly rely, ever seen or spoken to one of them? Answer me candidly and truly, and I know that you must answer in the negative. That the brothers might exist is, like all other improbable things, quite possible. That they do exist in connection with the Theosophical Society and Madame Blavatsky, I wholly disbelieve. If this society had been founded by such a brotherhood, it would have been far more wisely administered. Its leaders would have led higher and more consistent lives. Its organs would not have so often been disfigured by passages which must revolt every sensible mind, every kind heart. And lastly, its real founders would have taken means of thoroughly demonstrating their existence to some few, at any rate, of their more prominent supporters. Now, as you know, we personally press this point on two, at least, of the more prominent theosophists, and two especially favored by communications through Madame Blavatsky from the brothers. Could we get either to say simply, certainly the brothers do exist? On the contrary, the one said, well, I have no doubt they do. 
I have had no absolutely irrefragable proof, but I have been able to secure what seems to me a nearly perfect chain of circumstantial evidence to the fact of their existence. And when I questioned him, his evidence turned out to consist of, one, the very different and distinct handwritings of two or three brothers with whom he supposed himself to have corresponded, two, numerous phenomena, which were quite within the range of what we know to have occurred elsewhere in connection with mediums. Three, certain pieces of information furnished, which may have been lucky guesses, or if not, are in no way beyond the sphere of clairvoyance as exhibited elsewhere. And four, the style and purport of the letters received, which, while some of them were good enough, were many of them below the level of what so clever a woman as Madame Blavatsky might be expected to write and not one of them indicative, to my mind, of exceptionally high intellectual powers. He had really no more evidence of the existence of the brethren than the spiritualists have of the existence of the spirits of their departed friends. Facts there were, many of them, if accurately recorded, inexplicable by modern Western science, which in his case, Madame Blavatsky chooses to set down to the brothers while the spiritualists' mediums credit similar marvels to the dear departed. But the other favored theosophist, replying to my question, said he really did not know whether the brothers did or did not exist. There were great difficulties either way, but on the whole, as then advised, he thought the balance of evidence was in favor of their existence, that he had repeatedly changed his mind as fresh facts bearing on the question turned up, now pointing in one direction, now in the other, and that though he hoped in the long run to acquire a certainty one way or the other, he thought it very likely he should change his mind intermediately a good many times. He quite admitted the vital character of the question. He said, Of course, if the brothers are a myth, the society for me is moonshine. They and their supposed knowledge and beneficence are the only things that give it any reality to me. But my view is that, on the whole, it is more likely that they are realities than myths. That is my present conclusion, deliberately formed after perfectly impartially weighing all the evidence, pro and con, that I have as yet been able to acquire, and this being so, looking to the enormous importance of giving to mankind the truth about this life and the next, in place of the speculations, many of these clearly pernicious ones, that under various religious guises now mislead the world. I think it wise to labor and wait, and so, perchance, if the brothers do exist, win from them these truths. If they do not exist, I shall be none the worse for having tried to do good. Now, to a certain extent, I sympathized with this view, but the unfortunate thing is that, to me, the balance of the evidence seems rather the other way. But you think you place me on the horns of a dilemma by saying, either you must believe that the brothers exist or you must consider Madame Blavatsky and Colonel Alcott impostors. But impostors qui bono? Inrespectable? In fact, good positions in life? What had they to gain? Certainly not money. Certainly not popularity. You must at least credit them with sufficient foresight to have foreseen that they must necessarily be greeted with a general chorus of fools, knaves, rogues, impostors, and the like, then qui bono the imposture. Now, even if I accepted the dilemma, which I do not, for there is a third alternative which you have overlooked, 
I should not feel in any way cornered. Admitting their good position, admitting Madame Blavatsky's indisputable good family connections and rank, I see nothing in this to bar the possibility of deception. The history of imposture shows that every rank from prince to peasant has had its imposters. Then again, about money. They were both comparatively poor. How can anyone be sure that certainly they had no idea of making money? That they have made none, I know as well as you. But I also know that 50,000 new members yearly means 50,000 a year, out of which the founders might have noble pickings. And how is anyone to be certain that knowing, as every person does who has ever read about India, that every rank of native society is honeycombed with the belief in yogis and adepts, they did not expect a grand success and a huge revenue? They have not got it, but how can you pretend to assert that this hope was not at least one of their motives? You say that so far from this they have excused four-fifths of those who have joined from the payment of the one-pound entrance fee. But, my dear friend, do I suppose them to be fools? Do I fancy that in the face of the outcry that has been raised from time to time about the money matters of the society, they can now be so mad as to exhibit the least desire for money-making? Besides, it is an old-world proverb. Angle with a minnow to catch a whale. And it is a good policy, as all fishermen know, to let the little fish go, putting on too large a bait for their mouths. And what poor Buddhist, riot, and Ceylon could pay one pound to join a society? If you want to secure the large ones, and there are at least ten millions of fish in India who would swallow the one pound without winking. Then there is their magazine, The Theosophist, their own private property, with which the society has no financial concern, and which, if really well managed, might have proved a valuable property and yielded a large income. Agreed that it probably, even at the increased rate of subscription, only just pays its way, because the editor entirely wants that special talent, tact and good taste essential to the success of such a periodical. But had she or Colonel Alcott any conception of this fact when they started the Theosophist? Do they even now quite realize it? Do I then assert that money-making was their object? Far from it. I do not even on the whole myself believe that it ever entered into their calculations. All I desire to show you is that it is quite a tenable hypothesis, and your dilemma therefore worthless. But you say, then what motives can have led them on? I reply, many may have actuated them, but in such a case, most probably the love of notoriety, the desire to be known, to be somebody instead of nobody, thousands of worse crimes than that of merely bolstering up a pseudo-philanthropic scheme by a little transcendental fiction have been committed from the same love of notoriety. Hundreds of assassinations have been traced solely to this source. They must have known how they would be abused. Of course they must, but better to rule in hell than serve in heaven, and better think many to be the universal target for all abuse than to drag out a prosy life unknown and unregarded. It is notorious that, even in the highest English political circles, the mass of men preferred seeing themselves grossly and hideously charactered in Vanity Fair to remaining unnoticed by that, so far as its pictures went, grossly libelous print. And mind, while they doubtless expected much obloquy from the small English community, 
we must also credit them with sufficient sense to foresee that this very obloquy would serve to stimulate native enthusiasm. And we well know that it has not been all abuse or slander that they have met with. On the contrary, as a rule, they have been everywhere received by the higher as well as the lower classes of natives with respect and consideration, while in Ceylon their tours have been triumphal processions. A clever, energetic woman of good birth, debarred by comparative poverty from otherwise making a figure in the world, and an American official whose life had been, like that of all Americans of that class, always on evidence, and to whom the cacklings of newspapers were as the breath of life, are just the very people whom you would a priori think likely to be led into such an enterprise as this by a love of notoriety, of seeming or being something different from and better than all their neighbors. But again you say, I know them personally, and they are very good, kind-hearted people, quite incapable of any fraud. But, my friend, the heart of man is desperately deceitful and wicked altogether, and as you do not pretend to be an adept, you will pardon my doubting whether you or any man can certainly tell what any other person is or is not capable of. Nay, can you even be certain that there is anything of which you yourself are not capable under exceptional circumstances? I hold it little short of nonsense to build a controversial argument on your own conviction of somebody else's goodness, especially on the goodness of people of whom you necessarily know so little. It may satisfy yourself, it will satisfy no one else. What myriads of lifelong so-called saints have been proved before life ended to have been in reality the vilest of sinners. What tens of myriads must have escaped detection though watched throughout a score of years or more by hundreds of eyes and brains as keen or keener than yours. And after all, though deception is deception, and fraud fraud, I should not think that this particular deception would weigh very heavily on the minds of the perpetrators. They would say, all the objects of the society are good, no doubt we should like to be reverenced as prophets but then all we preach is the soundest, purest, and most elevated morality. And if to make people listen to us, to gain a hearing, and so enable ourselves to lead them to better things, we do evolve a little fiction about the brothers out of our own imaginations, what then? It surely is no such henuous sin. It is all with the best possible object, and we might do a great deal worse, and so they might. And now, having argued the point out in detail to show you that, even if accepted, your dilemma is worthless, let me tell you that though dozens and hundreds of my acquaintance do on these and like grounds, and reasoning consider them impostures, and thus explain their imposture, I personally, though admittedly the possibility of the fact, do not incline to believe that such is the case. There is a third alternative. They may themselves be deceived. And whether this be or be not the case with Madame Blavatsky, I am pretty certain in my own mind that it is so with Colonel Alcott. But I suspect that it is so with both. I know you will say that here is my inveterate spiritualistic bias showing out, but I am no more a spiritualist than I am an adept. I have indeed proof, superabundant, of the phenomena, not the doctrine's mind, of spiritualism, and so have thousands of others, while neither I nor any other living man that I can hear of, whose testimony appears to me of any real value, has succeeded in obtaining one fraction of real proof of the existence of the brothers. 
I've always suspected that Madame Blavatsky was a powerful medium. I know she is indignant at the idea, but it has always been my belief. That she is a clairvoyant at times is not disputed, nor that she possesses considerable magnetic and mesmeric powers. But I have just seen a long letter of Madame Blavatsky's sent by you to blank blank, who is as little a believer in the brothers as myself, in which she fully sets forth her mediumship and youth, and especially how, as spiritualists would say, under control. She used to write in a language imperfectly known to her in a perfectly distinct and characteristic handwriting, entirely unlike her own, but recognized as that of another person whose spirit was supposed to be controlling her. Though, as it later turned out, that person was not really dead, and she supposes herself now to have then acted under the influence of her own fifth principle. Now here, at any rate, is a clue to the different handwritings of the brothers. No doubt she may think that, as she grew strong and well, she lost her mediumistic powers. But my view is that, unconsciously to herself, she entered on a different phase of mediumship. She might then well see, converse with, and believe in brothers. No one who knows M.A. Oxen doubts that he continually sees and converses with some entity, his own spirit for all I know, that he calls Imperator. She may from time to time see many such. I have seen forms under circumstances which rendered deception impossible. Thousands on thousands have seen them at Eddie's farm. Well, too, might Damodar, and Pacha, and Olcott, and the others who are in magnetic harmony with her, occasionally see some of these. Because, though perhaps more often subjective, there is no earthly doubt, I mean to those who have calmly and patiently investigated the question, that such forms are often objective. So far there may be no deception on the part of anyone but Madame Blavatsky. Nay, it may well be that she herself thoroughly believes, though some, of course, will always suspect that she has some notion of the truth, the more so that she so vehemently scouts the idea of being a medium. Yet in her highly excitable temperament, restlessness of mind, loose and inaccurate habit of speech, in all her conduct and ways, she is more like a good medium than a chela of the kind of beings the adepts are represented to us as being. Wherever she goes, her irascible temper, her want of charity to all who oppose or doubt her, her dogmatic and imperious spirit and vehemence of speech are noticed. At any rate, in Upper India, and though at the same time her apparent kindliness of heart, love of justice, hatred of injustice and oppression, and sincere desires for the welfare of her fellow creatures are fully appreciated. Natives and Europeans alike say, as regards the former set of characteristics, she is very unlikely what any adept or yogi we have ever heard of was supposed to be. So now, on the whole, it seems to me that unless or until the brothers, if such really exist, and I in no way contest the possibility of the fact, choose to afford some much more conclusive evidence on their existence than they have hitherto vouchsafed to this benighted world. We are bound to hold the true dilemma to be whether the founders of the Theosophical Society are conscious and culpable or unconscious and innocent impostors. Does this seem a harsh judgment? Assuredly, there is not a shade of unkindliness or harshness in my mind towards the founders. Of Madame Blavatsky I know less, 
or at least feel less certain, but what I saw of Colonel Alcott certainly impressed me most favorably. But I put it to any unprejudiced person whether under these conditions or any other conclusions are possible. If they are erroneous, then let the blame rest, not with me, but with the brothers, who put forward a society involving a claim on their behalf of an almost supernatural character, and then, shrinking into their Himalayan hermitages, leave their poor faithful servants to bear the brunt of that distrust and condemnation by every honest and sensible man, which necessarily follows the enunciation of such a claim without any subsequent attempt to substantiate it. Now, if you can answer me, do so. I am perfectly open to conviction, but I have thoroughly considered the question, and, as at present advised, as you cautiously remark, see no way out of the dilemma which I, in my turn, present to you. December 7th, 1881. G.Y. Number 2. Reply to the foregoing letter. Dear Blank, There is so much in your letter in which I agree, and our beliefs and ideas in reality approximate so closely, though differing widely in your eyes in consequence of your misconception of my views and position, that, despite what you say, I am tempted to reply somewhat in detail to your interesting letter. It is neither our principle nor our practice to argue much with those who differ from us. We know that we possess a close approximation to the truth, the closest to which man in this stage of his career can attain, and we would fain share it with others. But we do not suppose that anyone's salvation, as you would call it, anyone's happiness, here or hereafter, depends upon acquiring an intellectual grasp of all truth. On the contrary, to follow your own symbology, we know full well that often importuned, the unjust judge will at length arise and do justice, and that the forlorn or widowed soul earnestly clinging to even the most erroneous doctrine will, in the end, win her cause. So, although anxious to give to all who can accept it our precious knowledge, we have no misgivings as to the future of those who disagree with us, and feel in no way that imperative yearning for proselytizing, natural and right in those who conceive a hell, yawning to involve in everlasting torments all whose faith differs from their own. But you really are so very close to us that it seems worthwhile to try and clear up some of your misconceptions. True, things look to you very different to what we tell you that they are, and yet, much as it may impede your vision and distort to you the objects beyond, there is in reality only a thin veil between us. Before, however, entering into details, please realize our position. You hold, and rightly so, that you are far more near the truth than the majority of the so-called Christian churches, because through the revelations of the seer Swedenborg you have grasped the portion of the spiritual sense of religion. Agreed, Swedenborg was a great seer, one of the greatest natural mystics that arose as witnesses to the truth during that dark cycle of materialism now drawing to a close. But he was only a natural and untrained seer, and there is the same difference between such a seer and a scientifically trained one, as there is between the natural musician who plays and sings entirely by ear, 
and does not know a note of music, and another who, to the same natural capacities, super-adds a thorough knowledge of through-bass and a complete scientific musical education. The untrained seer is always liable to error and is the slave, not the master, of the spiritual experiences he encounters. So it was with Swedenborg, and hence amongst much that is not only sublime but absolutely true. He has intermingled much that is erroneous. There are those amongst the adepts who knew him well. Efforts were made to help him to clear his mind, and not altogether unsuccessfully. Much of the truth he did bring back from other planes, to use your own phraseology, he owed to that assistance. No mystic with anything like Swedenborg's natural capacities ever draws upon the world without persistent efforts being made by one or other of the adepts to lead them to the absolute truth. But in his case, as in that of so many others, this was impossible owing to an inerascitable, erroneous fundamental conception, which absolutely barred his ever rising to the perfect light, and always insensibly blurred and distorted this to his inner sight. This erroneous conception was the Western notion of an omnipotent personal God, of which more hereafter. Not only, however, was Swedenborg as an untrained seer liable to err, but he stood alone, having no brother mystics working with him by whose spiritual experiences he could check his own. That he penetrated into extra-mundane planes is undoubted, but he brought away erroneous and imperfect conceptions on many points. Partly due to mistakes of observation and apprehension and other causes, but chiefly owing to the interference of astral influences, with his cognitions on his mental return to this plane, and during his attempt to remember and record what he had learnt. On the other hand, we claim that the adepts and their predecessors for thousands of years have been trained mystics, possessing the power of penetrating at will into the higher planes not with the uncertain steps of the natural mystic, but with the certainty of the skilled adept, who knows precisely what he is doing, where he is going, and the scientific reasons of all he does, feels, and wills. We claim further that all the knowledge thus acquired has been recorded from generation to generation, one account corroborating another, one supplying the omissions in another, so that a positive science of the invisible universe has been created based on as wide an experience as any physical science, and infinitely more reliable in its consistent totality than could possibly be the gleanings of any solitary seer or prophet, however great and worthy. This is our position. You may of course accept or reject it, but you can hardly maintain that it is either incomprehensible or in any way inherently unreasonable. Materialists who consider you and me equally fanatics for believing in a world of spirit, and which is still more insane in their eyes, for holding that this latter is the real and permanent world, while the physical everyday world is unreal and transitory, may, and of course will, logically assert that the entire concept is a chimera, a delusion, or a fraud. But you, unless you conceive yourself to have already mastered all the mysteries of the universe, cannot consistently deny that our contention may possibly be true. All you can assert is that as yet you have seen no sufficient reasons for accepting it as such, 
and that there are points involved in it which, owing to your imperfect knowledge of them, lead you to disbelieve that it can be so. Let me now return to the text of your letter. You say, I have no doubt whatever that this theosophy is just such a phase of spiritism as might be expected to take root in the eastern mental sphere, high and subtle as the outcome of the ancient races of the high and spiritual plane. Now, a good deal depends upon the meaning you attach to spiritism. By this word, I understand that science, which embraces a knowledge of spirit and things spiritual, and in this sense, theosophy is not merely a phase, but the very soul of spiritism. But if by spiritism you merely mean what is commonly, despite Alan Kardec's definitions, called spiritualism, the root and basis of which is the communication by and through mediums with unknown spiritual entities, then this is fundamentally distinct from, and to a great extent, prescribed by theosophy. Understand clearly that theosophy is, consider it alike in its practical, mundane, exoteric aspect, and in its spiritual, celestial, esoteric aspect. In its exoteric aspect, its cardinal tenets are an unselfish love for all God's creatures, for our fellow men in especial, and the entire devotion of the mind and soul to their highest conceptions of wisdom, goodness, and love. Hence, theosophy lays the greatest stress upon the practical realization of universal brotherhood and struggles to level all those pernicious barriers of caste, creed, and race that in this country, perhaps above all others, have proved such copious sources of human suffering. Hence, theosophy insists on the most absolute purity of deed, word, and thought, and on a constant endeavor to approximate to the perfections of that glorious ideal which you call God. We do not, it is true, use this latter term, firstly because it has been desecrated and is repugnant to us by reason of the grossly material atmosphere of, as they seem to us, unworthy, degrading, and anthropomorphic, if not actually blasphemous, conceptions that surrounds it. But secondly, because finite and impure, as after every effort we must still remain, we are conscious of the necessary inadequacy of even our loftiest conceptions of the infinite first cause, and prefer to refer to our highest conceptions of wisdom, love, and goodness, as such, without attaching to these a name, involving the assumption that we are competent to realize the infinite and the absolute. But for all this, the fundamental teachings of exoteric theosophy are essentially the same as those on which, said the Master, hang all the law and the prophets. Thou shalt love thy Lord, thy God, with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and thy neighbor as thyself. And indeed, these have been the cardinal tenets of all religions, worthy of the name, since the world began, and this is the universal platform on which we ask all men to meet in brotherhood, without reference to the peculiar form of faith or creed, and despite all other differences, to become one in the light of universal charity and love. In its esoteric aspect, the essence of true theosophy is the development of the supersensuous faculties, or, in other words, soul culture or psychism. The result of this culture is so to enfranchise man's spiritual essence as to enable it to affect, from time to time, even during this life, a union with the universal spirit 
and retain on relapsing into the normal plane of earthly life a correct remembrance of what has been learnt during such union. It is only then in its esoteric aspect that it can, for a moment, be considered to resemble spiritualism, and that supposed resemblance can only exist for those to whom the true nature of both systems is unknown. In spiritualism, communications are carried on with unknown incorporeal entities, who are entirely independent of the medium's control, whom, on the contrary, they control, these entities being, for the most part, there are exceptions of a low moral type. In soul culture or esoteric theosophy, communication is affected with the universal spirit, the embodiment of all truth, moral and intellectual. And if other entities are dealt with, they are dealt with as servants and not as masters, with the fullest knowledge of their nature and identity. Swedenborg, by natural gifts, was able to ascend in spirit to higher planes, but, unskilled and untrained, was always liable to have his recollections of what he saw and was taught in the higher spiritual regions, clouded and distorted by the influences of the intermediate planes, through which his spirit had to pass on his return to this life. But the adept, who by a protracted course of psychism attains the same faculty of visiting the celestial plane, I use your phraseology, mere words signify nothing one way or the other, being as it were a skilled and scientific and not a mere rule of thumb operator, is master of the intermediate plane and is not liable to its baneful and misleading influences. It is from this intermediate plane that all these seance room spirits come, and as their influence can scarcely, with very rare exceptions, be other than morally lowering, Theosophy steadily discountenances any habitual intercourse with them. I think you must now see that Theosophy is really even more distinct from Spiritism, as you understand it, than Swedenborgianism. This latter indeed lies between the two. Swedenborg was in some aspects a natural adept, but in others only a high medium. And it is to this, the latter fact, that are due to the many serious errors which are combined with those grand truths, that he was the first in modern times to re-enunciate in Europe. Talking of the Vedas, etc., you say you have seen extracts sufficient to confirm their descent from that wisdom of the ancients which has been lost in the moral and sensual decadence of mankind. But that wisdom, though buried from the world's eye, has never been lost. It is just that wisdom that the various schools of adepts for thousands and thousands of years have handed down in secrecy and in silence from teacher to pupil. It is precisely to acquire this wisdom that we press on towards the inner circle, striving to become worthy of admission. And it is precisely of this ancient wisdom that its venerable custodians now know that the time has come for affording to the outside world, sinking sadly in a slough of materialism, some transient glimpses. Again, you say, the brothers may be living men, at least there may be men calling themselves brothers, but if so, I have no doubt that they are high mediums under spirit influence. Here again, it's a matter of phraseology. In one sense, all adepts are high mediums under spirit influence, but not in any sense in which these words are used at the present day. Buddha, Jesus, and Swedenborg, when unmolested by the influences of the lower planes, were high mediums under spirit influence. 
They were mediums for the revelation of spiritual truth under the influence of the universal spirit. And so, in a major or minor degree, are all the brothers and other true adepts in or associated with every mature human being is an emanation from the absolute, a ray of the divine sun, a scintilla of the universal intelligence. Exceptional men in all ages have not only possessed a distinct consciousness of this, their heavenly guardian and guide, but have been at times enabled to unite it temporarily with its source, and so, for the time being, live as it were in the region of omniscience. These have been the prophets and seers of the world, always more or less liable to err from the extraordinary difficulty of reproducing correctly, and in their entirety, after we return to normal conditions, the true impressions received during what Plato and others called the time of ecstasy. For thousands on thousands of years, adept after adept has investigated and reinvestigated the mysteries of the unseen world has affected for long periods the junction of his own spirit with the universal spirit, and has recorded his experiences. Thus, by the constant checking of the work of each one, by that of all the others, a definite science of things spiritual has been evolved, on which other adepts again have worked and have obtained the results which were foreseen as infallible if the science was correct. Thus, there has been the careful observation and record of facts the generalization of the accumulated materials into a science and the verification of this by experiment. In the face of this, it is rather amusing to find you, who rely upon the dicta of one single untrained mystic, calmly saying that the brothers of the Tibetan school, for though you say Madame Blavatsky and Colonel Alcott, it was these brothers who taught us the constitution of man, Lacking as they so obviously do the spiritual truths which interpret all their chaos of principles, fifth, sixth, and seventh principles, misunderstand the influences which they suffer to sway them. My dear friend, there has been and there is only one single scientific method of metaphysics and of investigating spiritual things, and of that method in the present materialistic age the adepts alone possess the key. Herbert Spencer, Lewis, and 50 other philosophers have denied the possibility of any such science, and acquainted as they were with the physical senses only, they were quite correct from their standpoint. For by the physical senses or intellect alone, no man can ever acquire a knowledge of things spiritual. But as a fact, there are senses independent of the physical organization. The soul has faculties as well as the body. The essence of esoteric theosophy is the cultivation of these senses, and the results obtained in the course of long ages by the persistent use of these senses, after these have been laboriously trained, constitute a complete and reliable science of things spiritual. These things are, of course, as Herbert Spencer says, unknowable, so long as the bodily senses are realized. Once realized that the soul has senses as thoroughly qualified for dealing with spiritual things as the bodily senses are for dealing with physical things, and metaphysics pass from the region of speculation into that of fact. Heretofore, the world has had but chance glimpses of these supersensuous faculties. And though many, after investigating the phenomena of natural and mesmeric somnambulism and clairvoyance, have been led to believe in them, the great mass of mankind absolutely ignore them to this day. 
It is the special mission of esoteric theosophy, not merely to reassert the existence of these senses, but to teach all who are worthy how to cultivate and develop them, and at the same time to give to the world some faint idea of the eternal truths, which have been established by their persevering exercise by hundreds and thousands of sages through almost countless ages. Heretofore, all this has been kept scrupulously secret. The time has now come when the world needs these truths and begins to contain a growing proportion of people able to assimilate them, and they will, therefore, be gradually disseminated. Centuries may pass away before they are generally accepted, but the idea has been flung through a hundred different channels into the current of the world's thought. And silently and secretly, like the handful of leaven in the bushel of meal, it will work on until the whole world has been leavened. The adepts are wholly unlike any mediums I have ever heard of. Today, one traveling in India meets you in the flesh. A few months later, when he is in Germany, Kashmir, or Tibet, he suddenly appears beside you in a closed room, in his astral form, and gives you instruction. Or he drops a letter on your table, and your reply as soon as written and ready, disappears and duly reaches him, and that's mind when there is no other person in the house knowing anything of the matter, and when poor Madame Blavatsky and Colonel Alcott, those bete noirs of the incredulous, are both a thousand miles or more away from where you are, and have perhaps never even heard of the particular adept dealing with you. This power of entirely separating the more spiritual portion of our nature from our grosser physical body, of separating, in fact, ourselves from the earthly garment in which we were normally here appear, and of traversing the world at will with the rapidity of thought, unencumbered with our corporeal frame, is one to the acquisition of which soul culture is specially directed. When you reflect upon the alarming growth during the past fifty years of materialism, when you notice how all existing religious systems seem perishing by a sort of internal decay, a spiritual dry rot, losing day by day all vital hold upon an ever-increasing proportion of their nominal adherents. And when, as a result of this, you observe that already a majority of the most cultivated and intellectual men of the time, men whose views will infallibly mold those of the next generation, either distinctly disbelieve or gravely doubt a continued existence after the death of the body. When I say you reflect on all this, and all this involves, you can scarcely fail to realize the importance of esoteric theosophy, or misconceive the motives which, after thousands of years of secrecy, have now determined the adepts to share some portion of their knowledge with mankind. So long as the age of faith lasted, so long as mankind were able to believe in a future life, on hearsay and without proof, it was sufficient for the adepts to keep alive, against the time at which it would be required, the knowledge entrusted to them by their predecessors, by secretly recruiting their ranks from age to age with men worthy to be their successors. But now that faith is dying, that a large proportion of men of light and leading, the men whose ideas will constitute the intellectual atmosphere of the next generation, are crass materialists, disbelieving alike in their own souls and any future beyond the grave. The time has come when that knowledge must be gradually imparted to the world. If this is not to be allowed to disintegrate into a material hell, 
Day by day, as religions decay, divine laws are losing their hold upon the minds of mankind. And with this inevitably comes a loss of respect for human laws also. For remember that neither the gallows nor the bayonet can long secure respect for human laws, if these have not also the unseen spiritual support of generally accepted divine laws. The world, at any rate, the so-called civilized portion of it, is becoming rapidly demoralized. It is not merely the reckless, murderous, nihilism, communism, fenianism, and the like that are abroad. It is the general weakening of the moral sense amongst all bodies, political, commercial, professional, not only in the public, but even in the private lives of their members. And this is but the commencement. What will it be when the ignorant masses, destitute alike of self-respect and self-control, have adopted, as they will if no new and better impulse be given, the beliefs or rather non-beliefs of the intellectual leaders of the day. What an awful future seems looming on the world. A world without any religious guidance, without any belief in any other reward or punishment for their deeds, good or bad, than what they chance to meet with here. Without any knowledge of their own immortality or of a life beyond the grave. Such a world can only become a world of devils. But all this is the inevitable result of the obliteration of vital religious faith. And this obliteration spreads apace as the rising tide of materialism swells over the sands on which the footprints of bygone faiths have already grown sadly faint. Where shall we look for help? These bygone faiths are dead because the age of faith has passed away as with the flora of the coal measures, the atmosphere in which their existence was possible has disappeared. Men will no longer believe on hearsay, and these old faiths have not but this to proffer to the unspiritual-minded. If these are to be acted upon, if the coming terrors of a godless, soulless, materialistic age are to be averted, we must give proof of an existence beyond the grave of something in man independent of his physical and death-doomed body. We must show experimentally that this something can exist apart from that body even while it yet lives, and that that something is the man himself, the I whose only connection with the fleshly body is the same as this latter's with a suit of clothes. Nay more, we must rehabilitate the divine law of retributive justice a justice that none can elude, none deceive, a justice that exactly requites every human being for every deed, good or bad. Lastly, we must promulgate once more and strive to nurse into a practical fact, which it has never yet been anywhere or any time, the old divine idea of universal brotherhood. Where are we to look for all this, save only to theosophy? Theosophy that in its exoteric section preaches and insists on the practice of this brotherhood, and that in its esoteric section teaches all, willing and worthy to learn, how to obtain for themselves in their own persons, besides having experience of it in the case of others, proof positive of their distinctness from and capacity for existence apart from their physical bodies and of an unsleeping power that inevitably requites the last iota every good and evil act. So long as faith, i.e. the capacity for sincerely believing on intangible evidence, survives, and for effective, though concealed, restraint that renders orderly social organization 
permanently possible. The leaders of human thought are for the most part repudiating these ideas as incapable of proof. This repudiation is rapidly spreading, the most loathsome and contagious of all diseases. And it is spreading not merely as a negation of the susceptibility of these ideas of proof, but as an affirmation that they are false. Already the demoralizing effects are becoming manifest in most countries and in most ranks of society. Nothing but the experimental demonstration of the truth of these ideas can now apparently arrest the coming, though slowly creeping, social chaos. It is not necessary to prove these ideas to the masses. It is only necessary to prove them to those whose intellectual energies virtually, though insensibly, rule the minds of the multitude. But even so, no one religion, however firmly convinced its still faithful adherence may be of their truth, has any tangible proof whatsoever to offer of these fundamental and all-important ideas. Theosophy alone possesses and now offers to all who will fit themselves to receive it absolute proof of both these ideas. And yet not only the thoughtless multitude, but thoughtful religious people like yourself either affect to disregard it altogether or without any inquiry calmly set it down as spiritualism. But I must return to your letter. I'm sorry the fifth, sixth, and seventh principles so excite your scorn, but as they are a fact, I hardly see how I can appease you. Joking apart, it is simply your own misconceptions in this, and most other cases, that are leading you astray. I presume you do not doubt that your mind and your soul are two different things, and that the mind may be destroyed as by a bodily injury without any detriment to the soul. Well, the fifth principle is the mind, or rather, what you call mind, memory, intellect, are powers of the fifth principle. This boasted intellect is, after all, not such a very exalted possession. It is chiefly designed for recording, classifying, and reasoning from the phenomena cognized by the external or physical senses. Broadly speaking, and as a whole, it will be of no use in a state in which all the soul senses being thoroughly awakened, all things not merely phenomena or external appearances, but also noumena or internal realities, are known by intuition. It is no more a permanent property than a handsome body or a good voice, and like these it will be, excepting only its most ethereal portions, left behind as an useless encumbrance on the upward passage. True that in this earth life the sense of individuality chiefly resides, as a rule, in this fifth principle, and the fourth, which is the will, but if what you call salvation is to be attained, or, as we should say, continuous survival is to be secured, this sense of individuality must be transferred to the sixth principle, or this latter, as it were, evolved by the junction of the fifth with the seventh principle. Now this sixth principle is approximately what you call the soul, dormant in the mass of mankind and only awakened when the mind realizes that emanation of the absolute, that portion of the divine essence, that ray of the celestial sun which hangs a halo round the sleeping soul and which has been at all times dimly conceived under various titles, such as guardian angel, tutelary genius, and the like. This is what we call the seventh principle, and until the fifth affects a junction with this, in other words, until the mind realizes and bows down before this divine messenger and message, 
the sixth principle, the soul, remains dormant. Where is the chaos here? As a fact, all is orderly and scientific. It is your own conception of body, mind, and soul that is an unintelligible muddle, explaining none of the conditions of life and irreconcilable with well-established facts. There is the first principle, the gross physical body, which after death usually putrefies and rots. The second principle, the ethereal body. The third principle, the life force or essence, vital ray, or whatever you like to call it. The fourth principle, the will force. The fifth, the mind. The sixth, the soul. The seventh, the spirit. Now, all these are clearly distinct, have different origins, play different parts, and progress to different destinations. Don't you see that this seventh principle is what you call God, or more strictly, the Word, the Logos? That it was to this that Jesus referred when he said that the kingdom of heaven was within us, and again when he promised that he would be with all who truly follow the path he trod to the end of the world. This seventh principle it is from which you derive strength when you pray to resist temptations, resulting from tendencies of the body and of certain of the will and mind powers acted upon these. It is the seventh principle, the God with us, that you speak of as hearing and answering prayer. You have altogether failed to grasp the situation. You say universal brotherhood is a fine idea, but it is not theosophy. One is your master, even Christ, meaning divine truth as revealed to each individual soul. And all ye are brethren. How absolutely true. This divine truth revealed to each awakened soul, for mind in millions on millions the soul seems to remain dormant, is the seventh principle. It is Christ. It is God, or what you like. But it is impersonal, and a scintilla only of the universal divine, which is in and is everything. And truly are we all, I, everything that exists, brothers, in that we all have this one common parent. Christianity, true spiritual Christianity, cannot differ from theosophy, for theosophy is the root of which Christianity is but one shoot, and the Redeemer himself was an initiate and an adept. You add that if Christianity has not brought about a conviction of our universal brotherhood, this has been due to the fact that so few have lived the Christian life, and that the true Christianity has remained practically unknown, having been smothered under a mass of misconceptions evolved by the so-called Christian churches. In all this, I entirely agree, and the object of philosophy is to bring men back to the basal and eternal truths from which Christ and Buddha alike drew their inspiration. Yes, assuredly, as you say, everyone who lives a true Christian life does understand universal brotherhood, but he also lives a true theosophical life and acts in accordance with the doctrines, which helped to make Christ what he was, and which were enunciated by theosophy thousands of years before Christ was born. For remember what I have so often stated, theosophy is the root religion of the world which has for thousands and thousands of years been handed down from adept to adept, and which has been continually preached to the world, more or less openly, as the world was able to bear it, by one great religious reformer after another. Many of these were initiates and adepts and had a complete knowledge of the truth, though forced by the existing conditions of society to preach this only in part, in parables or by symbols. 
but numbers of the less eminent, like Swedenborg, or again, like the authoress of the perfect way, owing to natural spiritual gifts, have unguided penetrated into the unseen world and have learned for themselves, but necessarily imperfectly, what they preached. The name is not much older, perhaps, than the commencement of our era, but the doctrines, the spiritual truths, are as old as the rational, responsible mankind. There was, remember, an earlier non-responsible mankind. And the only reason for adopting this comparatively recent name was that it fairly represented the essence of what was to be taught, and that the early theosophists were initiates of schools that had branched off from the primal Asiatic Brotherhood, and did, though in an enigmatic manner, set forth many of the doctrines now held by adepts of all schools. Turn where you will to the writings of Confucius, Plato, the Zenda Vesta, the Kabbalah, the Vedants, the secret Buddhistic literature, the vision of Ezekiel, the Apocalypse. There is the same doctrine hidden in all, and that doctrine is the basis of theosophy. Theosophy has always had two sides, if I may so express myself, the practical and the theoretical. On the one has been set forth at all times, and to all men, openly and without reserve, that life which it is desirable to live, if one would prosper after this life is closed. Practically, you will find that all religions worthy of the name are agreed in all essentials as to the principles which should guide that life. Though they have differed a good deal in the application of these principles under the influence of the currents of thought prevailing at different ages and in different countries, on the other side is the science which justifies that life which proves the continued existence after death, and also shows why the course of life laid down on the practical side is truly and necessarily the one which will most benefit us in that continued existence. This side of the question has up to this time always been kept secret. At all ages, initiates able to bear and utilize the whole truth have been secretly instructed in it. As you truly say, Communication with the spirit world has always been preserved in glimpses by special individuals throughout the darkest ages. But every religious system, yet given anywhere to the masses, has been a more or less veiled presentation of this. But it, the perfect truth, has been present, though in abscondido in the doctrines of all spiritual religions and philosophies. And this perfect truth is esoteric theosophy. The proof whereof is that, whether you turn to the Book of Sohar, or the Dialogues of Plato, or the Vedants, or the Vision of St. John, the most obscure and exasperatingly unintelligible passages become clear at once, when examined by the light of theosophy. Nay, those astoundingly confused early chapters of Genesis, the despair alike of science and reason prove to embody, though, as usual, in a closely veiled form, a great deal of what is absolutely true. When, therefore, you think to damage theosophy by pointing out that Jesus Christ, 1900 years ago, preached the universal brotherhood, you overlook that he was only one of the many fruits of that sacred tree, the outermost foliage of which we now call theosophy and that that same tree, 1900 years before that, I and 1900 before that again, had borne other fruit, with the same perfume, the same invigorating and soul-restoring juice, and that if it were not that Christ's precious doctrines, like the similar teachings of all his predecessors, 
been smothered by creeds and dogmas invented by spiritually ignorant men. We should not now be repreaching the same old gospel of love to men and peace on earth, of purity, self-sacrifice, and universal brotherhood. But you claim as fatal to our position that brotherhood presupposes fatherhood, and you add that it appears to you that theosophy not merely ignores but proscribes our Father which is in heaven. Brotherhood presupposes a common parent, and the existence of such a parent in and through whom we and all things live, move, and have our being is the very foundation of the truly monistic creed of theosophy. We, one and all, nay, all things in the universe, minerals, vegetables, animals, men, and spirits, body, mind, soul, and spirit, are manifestations of or evolutes from the infinite and absolute, which is at once the ultimate substance and first cause of all that is or exists. But cognizant of the impossibility of our finite minds, formulating any adequate conception of the infinite and the absolute, we shun all approach to personizing the one and only, and turn from every form of anthropomorphism as from idolatry on a gigantic scale. For what difference in principle is there between the man who makes a statue embodying his conception of the Almighty, and then worships that, and those who project into the skies their conception of him, and constructing their sort of gigantic image of themselves in their highest moods, proceed to worship that? Therefore, no doubt we avoid those expressions in which you and many other good people seem to feel a pleasure which tend to personalize, and thereby, as we think, lower the conception of the infinite. And we do not talk of our Father which is in heaven, and who truly is, the life of every human soul, as ever at hand hearing and answering our prayers, numbering all the hairs on our head and the like, because comforting as may be this doctrine, it is not true. We and the whole world and universe have a common parent who is infinite and absolute, and absolutely beyond our finite conception, who is the life of every soul. But this infinite and absolute only makes himself known by unalterable laws, and the beings who do guide and govern the universe, and who pay to a certain extent the part you assign to your personal God are conditioned and finite, though compared with us infinitely high intelligences. The Old Testament truly enough tells of men communicating with God, but the gods referred to were Elohim, Adonai, El Shaddai, and the like, what we call planetary spirits, evolutes like ourselves from the common parent and who, in other systems and cycles more or less analogous to our present man-bearing cycle, have developed into what they are now, after having occupied successively positions analogous to all we have passed through, and many we have still to pass through, and have yet before them an infinite vista of further progression. Every human being involves the potentiality of the highest planetary spirits, and it was not in vain that it was asked, Know ye not that ye are gods? So you see, you are totally wrong when you talk about our brotherhood ignoring the one great father, but it reverences him too much to degrade him by setting up a magnified sublimated addition of ourselves to worship in lieu of him, and it is too conscious of our own finite capacities to talk glibly, 
and affect a sort of intimate personal knowledge of the absolute and the infinite. I cannot understand how a cultivated person like yourself has not long since withdrawn from this painfully puerile, to use no harsher term, phraseology. You must be able to see that the first cause, the omnipotent, the omniscient, must be infinite and absolute. And you ought to be able to realize that, he being this, it is absolutely impossible for you, finite and conditioned, to form any adequate conception of him, and therefore childish for you to talk and write as if he were, as you persuade yourself, an intimate acquaintance. Doubtless his representative is ever with you, your own seventh principle, a spark of his ineffable glory is ever present to guide you, but when it comes to the inscrutable infinite source and cause of all things, silent adoration is the only fitting tribute for the finite. You take exception to a passage in which I represent the brothers as saying, Nay, of the great secret we will teach you nothing until by your own free will you have placed your minds under our control. And you, as it seems to me, disingenuously suppress what follows to the effect that the entire order has this same security against the misuse of the great secret by any one of its members. Therefore, they only ask from us the security they require from each other, and culpable indeed would they be were they to communicate this secret to anyone without this security. You yourself speak, and again correctly, of the great prevalence at certain past epochs of the world's history of magical and diabolical perversions of spiritual truths. And can you not see that to publish to the weak and easily tempted, if not wicked world, this terrible secret would be to renew in all their intensity these magical and diabolical perversions? Do you understand that this secret is the manipulation of the astral essence, the ether? that it involves a power to rend mountains, dry up oceans, and level the mightiest cities in ashes in a few seconds? As I write this, Alexandria is burning in a hundred places. But there are places, I am told, surrounded by the conflagration where not a spark falls. And why? Because they contain priceless manuscripts of works believed to be lost, hermetic works enclosing the keys of a thousand mysteries works the property of the brotherhood, which brothers are present guarding, not merely from men, but from shot, shell, and fire. Do you suppose that a power which makes man master of the elements, an unseen and therefore so far as his fellows are concerned, irresponsible master, is to be communicated to men of the present stage of evolution? Without the most absolute precautions to guard against its misuse? It is purely childish to compare the taking such precautions with the Roman Catholic system of mental domination. In some adept schools, doubtless an hierarchical organization may exist analogous to that of the Jesuits. But in this matter, there is no domination, only such mesmeric mental relations set on foot. That any attempt to exercise the powers known to the organization, and if that exercise is contrary to the statutes, is frustrated. All of this, however, is quite beyond you yet. You cannot probably even conceive such a relation set up between hundreds of minds, that the thoughts of each are open, if not to all, to all in all grades superior to that to which the mind in question belongs. 
Yet this is one of the fundamental laws of all adept associations and could be perfectly conceived, though they would not know how to set about it, by all who have really practically studied mesmerism to any purpose. I cannot compliment you on your power of assimilating new facts when, with the facts carefully stated as they are in hints number one, you write such nonsense as the following. In a word, it appears to me you are setting up these brothers as your masters in God's place. It is true that we do not talk quite so glibly and lightly of the infinite as you do, but considering that nine times in that pamphlet it is reiterated that the adepts are not gods, merely men like ourselves to begin with, but now greatly elevated above most of us in virtue of their learning, knowledge, and purity, I confess your remark seems to me pointless and feeble. And when you go on to say that the respect all must feel however much they may differ from them on particular points, for men so much wiser and better than themselves is only one form of idolatry. I pause to consider whether you, who actually worship an image of yourself, your imaginary personal God, really know what idolatry means. However, when you get on to your own experiences and speak of how you have found yourself helped, of asking and having, seeking and finding, knocking and its being open to you, you are on the firmest of all ground, pure theosophy. But mind, it was not to your imaginary personal omnipotent God that you owe the having, the finding and the opening, but to the emanation from the impersonal infinite, to your own seventh principle, in fact. It was this, your spirit, the divine representative, the Emmanuel, that when realized by your mind breathed comfort into your soul. You have doubtless accomplished your salvation, as you call it, but you have only gone halfway. Spiritualize yourself further, and gradually the same spirit that has comforted, cheered, and enlightened you so far will open out other and higher truths. There is a system and a science by which that development of spiritual cognizance can be facilitated. And with this cognizance of spiritual truths comes also when the mind is so directed, a knowledge of natural laws, and with it a power of directing or modifying the operation of these. And the system or science is the grammar of esoteric theosophy. By your pure life and habit of concentrated prayer, you are already a theosophist. It will be your own fault if, following up the clue you already hold in your hand, you do not become an enlightened one, freed from the false conceptions generated by the prejudices surrounding by which your soul has developed. Knowing as you are known and seeing the absolute truth face to face. Seek and you shall find, knock and it shall be open to you. Do not rest content with the half-truths you have. Call nothing yours till all is one. You have accomplished perhaps the most difficult portion of the task the spiritual regeneration. You still have to clear your mind of prejudices and to purify your body. But this purification of the body is to you, I know, a most monstrous idea. You cannot conceive what the body can have to do with the soul. You seem unable to realize that man being a compound existence, the several constituents act and react upon each other, and yet it is the unavoidable condition of all combinations. If we take an extreme case as of a man who daily gets drunk, you will probably admit that this will greatly diminish his chance of psychical development. 
But if the proposition be propounded that everything that tends to stimulate the physical nature and increase the grossness of the particles, and I may say the density of the physical frame tends pro tanto to prevent the exercise of the supersensuous faculties or soul senses, you cannot understand it. Let me ask you to read the articles on the elixir of life which appeared in the Theosophist. They are by no means so entirely explicit as they seem, but they will at least give you some idea of the rationale of the system which so reduces the body as to place it entirely under the control of the will, and so weakens its hold upon the soul as to leave the senses of this latter almost as free to operate as if it had been finally enfranchised by that repulsion we call death. All true adepts have gone through the training sketched in the paper referred to, and all the higher grades are beyond the ordinary laws of mortality. Die they will and must in the long run, and glad they are when their work done to the utmost, they shuffle off their mortal coil to pass to where, beyond these voices, there is peace. But their lives yet extend to periods quite unheard of in the workaday world. You remark that one fundamental error underlies all this occultism, which is no new thing in the world, and is the idea that spiritual mysteries may be penetrated by natural means, that the means of prolonging earthly life might be attained by cunning distillations and combinations of natural substances is one phase of this error. But this is no more possible than to find the soul by the subtlest dissection of the body or the analysis of the substances. This is such a jumble of truth and error that I hardly know how to deal with it. Most certainly it is quite as absurd to expect to penetrate spiritual mysteries by natural means, by which I suppose you to mean by the exercise of the physical and normal mental faculties, as it would be to expect to detect the soul by aid of the scalpel. But what man's soul being closely allied to his spirit, and being capable by this alliance and its own natural faculties, of cognizing things spiritual, there is no absurdity in supposing that the soul may penetrate spiritual mysteries. In most men, the soul's supersensuous faculties remain dormant until the fleshly bandages unwound by death, the baby soul, released from swaddling clothes, finds itself for the first time able to utilize its innate capacities to any real purpose. Some men, however, are born with a natural, ready separability of body and soul. And in these, the soul can exercise, though imperfectly, its inherent faculties. And such men have been the great poets and prophets of the world. Esoteric theosophy teaches the rationale of unwinding, even in this life, the bandages of the soul, and thus enabling it to do before death what otherwise it could not have done until after death. In one sense, the means employed viz. the repression of the bodily and the great development of the mental and moral energies may be said to be natural, because nature is in everything, and nothing is, or ever was, or ever will be, in the strict sense of the word, supernatural. But these means certainly lead to the acquisition of faculties which, quoad the mass of mankind, are superhuman, if not supernatural. Naturally, the extent to which in any person the unwinding of these bandages without causing death is possible must very greatly in accordance with differences in physical, mental, and moral development. In some, nothing practically is possible in this direction. In many, it can be carried only to a limited extent. 
in some few exceptional organizations, it can be carried to an extent that places the soul while the body is yet alive in an even better position for exercising its faculties in the unseen world. Then, but for the special training of esoteric theosophy, it would have enjoyed for long after death. In all cases, death is approached during this training. Often this latter has to be discontinued on pain of death. Always great caution and skilled guidance is necessary for the advancing neophyte. Bulwer, who knew much about these matters, and indeed met two of the brothers in Italy, knew perfectly well what he was about when he personified the dangers of the progress in his demon or dweller of threshold. And many a rash neophyte struggling to force his way into the arcana without due preparation has in shattered nerves and enfeebled mental and bodily organization experienced the long persistent hauntings of this demon. If you now fail to realize that it is by something more than what you call natural means that adepts have, from age to age, penetrated the spiritual mysteries of the universe, I'm sorry for you. If you or others say, well, even so, after all, what good does it do then? The reply is simply that it is in itself the highest good attainable by man. It is not merely that in this life it gives him a full and perfect knowledge of the conditions of the next and future lives. It not only shows him certainly the course of life here that will most profit him and his fellows further on in the journey, but it allows him to start at death on his new career, not a mere baby soul just released from swaddling clothes, uncertain where to go and what to do and exposed to innumerable influences. A straw that will be caught into a vortex and Nolan's volans disposed of under fixed laws. But as an adult and experienced traveler familiar with the whole route and able to great extent to direct and control his own future destinies. What? This is really too much. Well, I'm sorry. But it is a fact all the same and you will fully recognize one day, if not in this present earth life. But to return to your remarks, no adept or occultist ever thought that life could be prolonged by cunning distillations, in the sense in which you use the word. All the writings of the alchemists and Kabbalists are written in symbolic language. The mercury, the salt, and the sulfur are purely symbols, as you may gather, if you take the trouble to study carefully. Reading between the lines, the dogme au rituel de la haute magie, the great Athenor had to be sublimed. The magnum opus, the transmutation of the baser metals into gold, had to be performed in the laboratory of the soul. Read intelligently any of the great Kabbalistic works, any of the great alchemists, and then turning to those papers on the elixir of life, to which I previously referred to you, if you cannot see that here is the latter, you have a clear exposition for the first time in the history of the world of one of the profoundest mysteries of all the magicians, alchemists, Kabbalists, and the like. In fact, of Le Grand Ouvre, it is simply that you still lack the spiritual insight to complete the untying of the more than half-disentangled knot. You and others, the vast majority of mankind who laugh at the idea of prolonging life by cunning distillations, are really those most to be laughed at, and that taking the embroidered veils of words with which the old adepts shrouded their knowledge from the profane, for the real substance you have failed, as they meant, all destitute of spiritual insight to fail, 
to catch even a glimpse of those great truths that they put on record, but only for those worthy to receive them. And parables ever have the seers spoken, nor has it been the master only who has said, He that has ears to hear, let him hear. Truly, it is strange how you repeat theosophic truths without in the smallest degree understanding their purport, any more than you understand the equally allegorical expressions of the alchemists. You say, Moreover, we are told that the comforter or spirit of truth who comes when man has risen from the death of selfishness and mere earthliness to the life of obedience to his living God, will lead us unto all truth. Why, this is the very essence of esoteric theosophy. What is the coming of the Holy Ghost? What is the magnum opus but the opening of the soul's eyes, following on the annihilation of self and earthly desires and the life of obedience to the living God? that emanation of the absolute and infinite ever with man until he is utterly lost, which we call the seventh principle, and you may call God, conscience, Christ, or what you like. It is this destruction of selfishness and worldliness, this life of perfect purity and love, which constitutes the sublimation of the great Athenor. And an adept in the true sense of the word is only a man on whom has descended to use apostolic language, the Holy Ghost in all its power and with all its gifts. Christians generally, but especially you Swedenborgians, have the letter of much of the truth, but you, none of you, attain to the Spirit in its entirety. Alike in your writings and those of numbers of earnest Christians of other sects, I meet with whole pages in which the true doctrines are laid down faultlessly though to a certain extent in parables, and yet when one comes to look into the matter, one finds that the writers themselves, their minds still fettered by the religious prejudices forged around them in childhood, couple altogether imperfect significations with the correct and comprehensive language they employ. If you say, then according to this, theosophy is only a form of Christianity, I reply that theosophy was what Christ undoubtedly taught, exoteric theosophy openly to the world, as in the Sermon on the Mount, which may be paralleled verse by verse in Buddha's teachings, and the esoteric in parables, to a certain extent, and fully to one at least of his followers, as proved by the revelations of St. John, which contain all the secret doctrines of the highest theosophy, albeit sealed from the knowledge of all non-initiates, but the Christianity of the great churches bears no resemblance to the preachings of the Master, and these, his preachings even, have come down to us in a most imperfect form, and, as they stand, are nothing more than a repetition of a portion of the teachings of Buddha and other ancient Eastern religious teachers, some of whose writings date back to at least 1200, and our teachers say nearly double that number of years before Christ. All these teachings have had a common source. All these teachers have had a common teaching. It was not for nothing that Jesus is represented as going down into Egypt, and that teaching that source is the ancient wisdom religion of the world, which we now, faux de mieux, represent by the Greek term theosophy. I see you are very incredulous about Kuthumi, having written the letters published in the occult world, and you clench as you think the argument against their authenticity by saying that if a Hindu recluse could write these letters, then Johnson or Fielding might have written the Vedas. Well, if Johnson or Fielding had been high adepts, 
They might just as well have written any Sanskrit work as any English one, provided only that they had had amongst their disciples, united to them by magnetic bands, any good Sanskrit scholar. Khutumi, though a fair English scholar, educated in Germany and England, and quite able to write good English, would doubtless, from want of practice, have found at any rate at first some trouble in writing to us had he not been able to use the brains of others. And it is not only in English that he can write like an Englishman, he can write in any and every language known to any of his regular disciples as well as any of them can, even though he may not himself know in the ordinary sense of the term one word of that language. For he formulates the ideas he desires to express, impresses them by the power of his will on the brain, of whose services he avails himself, and then reads off the verbal exposition that arises from that brain in response to that impression, and has all he requires. Of course, to enable that adept to utilize thus another person's brains, that other must have been placed in the strictest magnetic relation with him, and must have become his true disciple, as Colonel Alcott is, not merely a lay pupil as I was. How often in the commencement of our correspondence, when K.H. had not for long years had occasion to write English, he did avail himself of Alcott's faculties, was apparent from the frequent Americanisms that adorned, or disfigured, take your choice, his letters. But these peculiarities have almost disappeared now that for two years he has been in constant correspondence and direct intercourse with us English. Setting, however, all this aside, these letters simply are K.H.'s, and he, having been for a time my immediate master, teaching me directly, I presume I ought to know. You may set me down as a lunatic or a liar, but the question no longer remains for me, one in regard to which I can argue. One word more, though this, as the facts stand, scarcely bears upon the question. You must not forget that the higher caste, pure-bred natives of India possess greater capacities for acquiring foreign languages than the majority of Europeans. I know at least a score who can speak and write English better than 99 out of every 100 English gentlemen. Two or three of them are better speakers than any European we have had in India during the last 30 years. And one, the brother of a friend of mine, admittedly writes and lectures in German as well as any German. So even had Kudhumi no exceptional resources to fall back upon, there would have been nothing incredible, he being a high-bred Hindu whose ancestors for nearly 4,000 years have been highly civilized, in his writing those letters which to you seem so unlike the possible productions of a Hindu recluse. As for the case of the unhappy girl you refer to, her fate should be a warning to those spiritualists who recklessly place themselves, practically bodies and souls, at the disposal of invisible entities of whose nature and antecedents they have absolutely no certain knowledge. Entities almost without exception more or less bad. There is nothing to surprise me in this case, seeing that it is only a typical instance of a class of cases known equally to the ancient Hindus, the Kabbalists, and the demonologists of the Middle Ages. The latter designated the male visitants, like the one who appears to have consorted with this poor girl, the spiritual husbands, in fact, of America, incubi, while the female visitants, the spiritual wives, were called succubi. 
you will find a full explanation of these incubi and succubi and fragments of occult truth, number 111. It is very good of you, my dear friend, to say that if theosophy is of any use or comfort to me, you would be sorry to deprive me. You would not try to deprive me of my satisfaction in it. Just so some kindly-minded miner, bred and born in the deep levels whence he has never ascended to the surface, might cheer the heart of some denizen of the upper earth, by the assurance that if the sun was any use or comfort to him, he the miner would be sorry to deprive him, would not try to deprive him of his satisfaction in it. Believe me that once theosophy has opened the soul's eyes to the spiritual sun, it were easier to deprive the ordinary man of his knowledge of and pleasure in the physical sun than to deprive the theosophist of his satisfaction in that higher light. Should you retort that if this be so, then truly there seem but few theosophists whose soul's eyes have been opened. I cannot contest the point. The great majority of theosophists are little more than theosophists in name. They have not yet realized that. Within themselves, deliverance must be sought that each his own prison makes. Aye, and that all the doors and windows of that prison, out of which the fettered soul might happily peep, are wholly blocked up with the cares and desires, if not also with the sins of this delusive dream that the soul-blind prize and miscall life. But you can no more lead the miner whose entire life has been passed in the deep underground workings or the blind man from birth to realize the sun than you can lead the vast bulk of mankind of the present races to realize that higher light to which esoteric theosophy, rightly understood and rightly followed, leads. The time, however, is coming. Stray precursors of the coming higher race have appeared. Some have passed on. Some are still on earth. Every decade will now increase their number. Until they preponderate, there will be no general acceptance of esotericism. In the meantime, a handful of us, clumsy laborers, though to a certain extent directed by experts, are sowing, sadly enough, sowing knee-deep in the mire of sin and sensuality, buffeted by the ridicule, drenched by the pitiless calumny of the heedless world, certain never to see much fruit of our labors, content with the knowledge that long after we have passed on, after many, many days, the bread that we are casting on the waters will be found and feed many. To one point I notice that you take objection, viz. the warning all receive that a man may spend his whole life in carrying out the views and wishes of the adepts, and yet make but little progress after all. Now, in the first place, can you not understand that men are differently gifted? Beethoven might have had a devoted servant who spent his whole life in obedience to him, who reverenced him and loved music and whom Beethoven truly desired to teach, but who, for want of capacity, never made any progress worth speaking of as a musician. Similarly, any one of the adepts may have a most devoted disciple who even by a life's devotion fails to make any great progress in occultism. He will, of course, be taught all vital truths. These will now gradually be placed within the reach of all mankind, disciples or not. But owing to his defective organization, physical or spiritual or both, he will never acquire command over the powers of nature and never be able to verify for himself many of these truths, 
And as such cases occur, and I believe at times unexpectedly, some slight overlooked defect suddenly starting out into prominence to bar further progress. In this particular life, surely such a warning is only just. But again, obedience to the behests of any adepts, however excited, can never quite by itself make an adept. Besides working for others outside, the aspirant must work for himself inside. He must change his whole inner nature, and this depends on no brother, but solely on himself. So you see there is nothing at all unreasonable in the warning that a man may devote his whole life to the service of the adepts, and yet himself fail to secure any very marked return for his services in this life. But where this happens, it will never have been from the vault of anyone but himself. Nay, it will as likely as not be the result of no fault in this life, of his even, but only of his misfortune in being born without certain necessary organic capacities. At the same time, though, in this particular life, the man may make little or no progress. It must not be supposed that he gains nothing. On the contrary, his future development must necessarily be immensely facilitated by the pure and self-denying life that he must lead as a preliminary to establishing any real relations with any adepts. It is a case in which nothing, except the vanities of the world, can be lost, and in which the gain, sooner or later, is certain. I must not, by the way, quite overlook a mistake you make when you talk of conjugal intercourse being represented by the brothers as an infringement of chastity. Nothing of the kind is ever represented. Neither duly regulated conjugal intercourse, nor the use of wine in moderation, nor the eating of meat are represented as sins. As regards the use of liquor, it is doubtless held that, as St. Paul says, though all things are lawful, all things, and this particular one in special, are not expedient. Considering that almost throughout the world in the present day fully half the sin, suffering, physical and mental, and even crime results from the abuse of alcoholic liquors. All adepts feel very strongly that all men who really love their race should steadily set their faces against and try by advice and, above all, example. Oh, what a magic there is in this, to stamp out the use of these. But this is a matter of opinion, and they are the last people to dogmatize on such points. But what they do say is that even granting, which they by no means admit, that all these things are absolutely blameless and innocuous to the soul's future progress. Still, as a matter of fact, unless they do absolutely abstain from sexual intercourse, alcoholic liquors and animal food, not one person in 10,000 can possibly bring their bodies into such a state as will permit the free development of their supersensuous faculties or soul senses. If you have faith, well and good. That takes the place of knowledge and will enable you to live and die happily. But if your faith is weak, if you cannot feel happy and satisfied about death and the life beyond, if you desire to acquire certain knowledge as to these matters, then, say they, we who have ourselves made the experiment tell you as a fact that, amongst other preparations, you must give up these three things absolutely. You must be content with your own position, and I doubt not rightly so. I know you have fought a good fight and have every reason to look forward to the victor's wreath. But there are many who, on only the grounds you possess, could not be so. 
For if you reflect, you have no tittle of evidence to support your creed. You believe only just so much of the Bible as pleases you, and that you interpret according to very peculiar canons, and you accept as much of Swedenborg's teachings as you approve. But of all you do accept, the sole criterion is that it commends itself to your mind. This is not evidence, and you can give no reason for the faith that it is in you, and you could not therefore possibly convince anyone else. And yet you are satisfied, and to a certain extent rightly so, because you have by your life and by concentrated prayer awakened your soul's senses. And it is these which assure you that, on the whole, you are on the right road. But these senses are only partially awakened. They are still hemmed in closely by dense matter and oppressed by physical activities. And if you desire entirely to enfranchise them and so learn for yourself the whole truth, for with all its beauty, what you have is only a fragment, you have Nolan's Volans, and without any reference to whether there is or is not anything intrinsically wrong in them, to abstain absolutely from animal food and Luther's two standbys, wine and weeb. If you don't like this, I'm sorry, but it is a melancholy fact that in this world things too generally decline to square with our predilections. One has to make the best of them. Things, remember, are not true because we like them, but if we are wise, we like the things that are true. You are not one of them, but many would hear Pilate-like exclaim, What is truth? Now, in regard to things spiritual, that system alone to which theosophy opens the door can show anyone certainly the truth. The body has senses to cognize things physical, the soul to cognize those spiritual, just as it would be folly to consult a stranger standing inside a closed and whitewashed window as to the landscape stretching outside that window. So it is absurd to consult those, the windows of whose souls are blocked with matter, as to the outlook into the spiritual world. A good many earnest, pious men manage somehow to scrape off a certain limited quantity of the obstructing medium and obtain more or less limited glimpses, seen as through a glass darkly, of what is beyond. But there is only one possible method by which the obstruction can be entirely dissolved away and a perfect view obtained, and the receipt for this is now only known in the inner esoteric circle of the Theosophical Society. In other words, to the august associations of all of which that society, though the immediate offspring of one, is the outward and visible sign. You talk about the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but it is clear that you do not know that this knowledge is really and truly that very knowledge of which the adepts are the sole surviving custodians. Still less do you appear to know that the eating of the fruit of that tree, which truly brings upon man such ruin, is the use of that knowledge for one's own selfish or worldly good. The tree indeed is fair, worthy to grace the paradise of the pure souls, but the eating of its fruit, the prostitution of spiritual power to selfish earthly purposes, is the unpardonable sin. And to this day, the sentence of death pronounced from the beginning against all who commit it remains unrevoked. In the day that thou shalt eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. Yet ignorant of all that lies behind, you sneer at those who, knowing all, insist upon the most rigid precautions to prevent the mass of foolish Adams and Eves, 
the mass of mankind acquiring knowledge and power that they would certainly misuse, not only to their own destruction but to the ruin of the world. But it seems almost useless to attack joint by joint your letter, which, like a wounded serpent, drags its weary length along. I began writing in the hopes of opening your eyes, and I close feeling the hopelessness of the task, blinded as you are by preconceived notions. You quote purely theosophic precepts such as, He that doeth the will of my Father that is in heaven, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God. Which merely means that a life of purity bears necessarily the fruit of spiritual enlightenment. As much a root doctrine of theosophy and of Confucianism, Vedantism, Buddhism, and Zoroastrianism, offshoots of theosophy as it is of Christianity, and seem to fancy you are setting up a new Christian light to guide the footsteps of the eternal wisdom religion. Why an Adamanese might as well come to dispute the correctness of your creed, and patronizingly suggest to you as the evidence of the superiority of his own that one of its leading commandments was, Thou shalt not commit adultery. You say, how much better to live the life of the Christian gospel, but my dear friend, the life of the esoteric theosophist, if he be a true theosophist, is the life of the Christian gospel. But remember, the gospel was only the teaching for the multitude, it was only exoteric Christianity. To St. John, at least, Christ seems to have taught the inner truths. And in the Apocalypse, you find a resume of the secrets of the highest initiations and of the fundamental doctrines of esoteric theosophy. But how to make you realize this? Your letter shows you throughout as a good, though unenlightened, theosophist, greatly spiritualized by a good life and by habits of spiritual concentration, which you call prayer. But with all that still blundering in the darkness, created by the mass of prejudices and superstitions in the midst of which you have developed, unable to perceive and utilize the means so close to your hands, which would replace in all matters spiritual faith and speculation by knowledge and certainty, and halting complacently at the halfway house, fully persuaded that you have accomplished your journey. Do I expect you to believe all this? Candidly speaking, on reflection, I do not. Few and far between are those of the existing humanity that will or can accept the whole truth. But in a hundred ways and through innumerable agencies, the way for the acceptance of this is being prepared. We do not expect much credence or many supporters in Europe in our own time. No great religious reform ever made much progress in a single generation. Now is our seed time. And though we shall not be here in our present conscious personalities to rejoice, there is a glorious harvest time to come, in the fruits of which we and you alike will share. Let me explain. Let me give you, at any rate, something new to you. You will laugh it to scorn, for it will not in any way adapt itself to your theogony, but it is a truth all the same. For countless myriads of myriads of ages, the entity that you call your soul has been developing, first in three kingdoms, two of them subjective and incomprehensible to the uninitiated, and after passing through innumerable stages and states in these, it entered fairly its career into the material world, in the mineral kingdom that passed from planet to planet of our cycle, occupying in each a series of mineral encasements or enmetalliations, a whole round of the various planets belonging to our man-bearing cycle, 
having been accomplished in the mineral kingdom, the entity started on a similar round in the vegetable kingdom. And this accomplished on a similar round in the animal kingdom. Millions of years were thus passed, and thousands of existences had been passed through before the entity had attained a development fitting it to appear in the lowest form of man, a physical ape-man, not morally responsible. Now man, excluding those who, after attaining the stage of moral responsibility, are shipwrecked by the way, has many complete rounds to make of the entire cycle of the planets. And in each planet, in each round, he has many lives to live. At a certain stage of his evolution, when certain portions of his less material elements are fully developed, he becomes morally responsible. You look with either pity or wonder on poor undeveloped creatures like the Adam and Ease, Australians and the Squimal. These only differ from you and the mass of mankind in having lived far fewer man lives. As they are, so you once were. and. As you are, so will they be later. During each round, the entity has to live several lives in several races. Now, if we say that the mass of mankind are in the higher races of the fourth round, then these Esquimal, etc., are in the later races of the third round. Almost the whole of mankind has got through the third round. Only a few stragglers still remain to find such incarnations. And in a very short time, the third round men will have become extinct. Even on the fourth round, immense numbers have passed on, and a large number of the more spiritual-minded men, alike of the East and West, are in quite the highest races of the fourth round. Already a few stragglers of the lowest race of the fifth round have made their appearance, but a long period must elapse before these cease to be other than the rare efflorescence of an age, and until they cease to be this, the eternal wisdom religion theosophy in its broadest sense can never become universally accepted. But of the higher races of the fourth round, men of a certain proportion possess the spiritual development necessary to permit an assimilation of the pure truth. And for these, and year by year they are increasing in number, while the proportion of the lower races is diminishing, we are working, knowing that not one true word will be wasted, though many such may be long without finding natures sufficiently developed and sufficiently free from preconceptions in which to germinate. Now pray do not think that, dissatisfied with your rejection of my veritable flying fish, I am revenging myself by concluding with a pharaoh's chariot wheel narrative. Indeed, it is not so. All I have said above of man's development is, if rightly grasped, absolutely true. He that hath ears to hear, let him understand. Yours, etc. H.X. Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for $7.77 per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes. This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.